I'll have a seat. Good morning. I am excited to be with you guys as we continue our series this summer on theology. My name is Buck Anderson. If I've not yet met you, I office here at the Anderson campus, work in our area of operations as well as in leadership development. And I'm excited about our topic. Uh, To be honest with you, a little daunted when I got the email about two months ago that I'd be covering the doctrine of Christ in 42 minutes, but I'm going to give it a shot. I got PowerPoints and everything. We're going to see what happens. If you uh, go to Bible college or or seminary, you would would take a course called Christology, a couple of fancy words, Christos and Logos, for the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be about today. Um, I must admit, while I was preparing, I found myself uh, overwhelmed at times and, and, and kind of identified three categories or maybe three phases of how I was reacting to what frankly is an immense amount of biblical material on the second person of the Trinity or the Son. In some of the areas I was becoming aware or more aware of some information, we'll see this early in our time together today, as Christ is going to be seen from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to take a look in the old book and and see the, the prophecies about the Son some of the images of God that you'll see in the Old Testament, uh, which I take it to be the pre-incarnate Christ. But maybe those might be areas of, of newness, awareness. And as I sort of had to dust off a few things I had learned years ago, I went back and searched the scriptures and I said, yes, these things are so. But they were still in the area of awareness. Those things that I'd had some familiar with, some familiarity with, I found myself moving into the the area of appreciation. As I began to see the person of Christ as he's prophesied and and my life converge, I began to see the ever more wonderful plan of God that involves, of course, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the point man of the Trinity. He's the darling of the trio, if you will. And to begin to appreciate God beautifully weaving his son's story with my story, with our story, was powerful to me. And then that later moved, and sometimes these would happen all in, in a row, they would move to adoration or praise and worship. Uh, we sing every Christmas, right? Oh, come let us adore him. We, we can sing that all year long. It's a, a beautiful way to think of the subject of praise and worship, the idea of adoration, to adore someone. In this case, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the key, in my opinion, to, to handle this material is to keep these two things in balance. That first, he is immense. Uh, The the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ as presented in the scripture, frankly, is overwhelming. And frankly, I want us to be a little overwhelmed with it. I want us to step back and go, whoa, there is a lot of information about Jesus in the Bible. But that immense individual is also intimate with us. And so to hold that balance between the infinite and the finite or the the great and the small, you and me, I think is the key to understanding Christ. If we we see him only as immense, we we may separate from him and and not really think he's approachable. If we only see him as kind of our buddy, someone we just hang with, we'll, we'll, we'll forget the holiness and grandeur of God as seen in Jesus Christ. So that idea of immense grandeur and intimate grace is really what I want us to, to focus on today. Uh, we'll, we'll take a look at the usual suspects. We'll go and take a look at, at some of the, uh, uh, the more 
routine, if you will, certainly important aspects of the life of Christ, his birth, his baptism, first sermon, upper room discourse in John 13, of course, Christ on the cross and Christ uh, rising from the dead. But we'll also take a look at a lot more than that. And I want us to spend some time and enjoy that. We're going to take a look at this magnificent character. I, I, I love this, this uh, cover from Life magazine, other than I think they, they got the verb tense wrong. I think it should be, who is he? But as we think about this individual, uh, maybe the author of Hebrews will give us the best insight into a snapshot version of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets to many portions and in many ways, in these last days, in the days in which we live, has spoken to us in his son, in, in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. As you think through this magnificent character, this magnificent being, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal second person, I've given us don't be scared, 10 different stops that we're going to make on our tour. Some of them we'll just run in and get a Coke and then leave real quick, but others we may spend a little bit more time. The majesty of the Lord Jesus is indeed uh, seen in in this material. And as we'll walk through from the pre-incarnate Christ seen in the Old Testament, the literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, don't worry, we're just going to look at eight. We're going to see the, the, the wonder of the incarnation. God became a man. He had to be fully man and fully God. And that was, that was that solidified in this fancy phrase called the hypostatic union. We'll take a look at that. We'll look at areas that we may be a little bit more familiar with, the earthly life of Christ. Ask the question, what's he doing now? And what's on his job description for the future? But it will be incomplete if we don't ask the last question, where is the son in my life? So as we think through those three letter or words that began with, with A, maybe you can categorize where are you in the area of awareness, where are you in the area of appreciation, where are you in the area of adoration in each of these items, okay? As we take a look at the first one, the pre-incarnate son, uh, I want to sort of make sure we have some basic terms down, okay? These are terms that only show up in church, so we need to make sure that we have a good understanding, obviously pre meaning before, incarnate meaning in flesh. And the, the, what this brings up is this idea that before Christ was in flesh. Uh, and, and we see this idea of there was an existence of the Lord prior to that baby in a manger. And that's new information for a lot of folks. His, his pre-existence and his eternality is actually what separates the Lord Jesus Christ from all the other religious heads, if you will. For only he claims to have existed before and have existed always and as God has always been. So the idea, obviously, of preexistence is he has always existed, certainly existed prior to his birth. To be honest with you, when I came to Christ at age 29 years old, that was new information to me. I thought, with a lot of other people, that Jesus was born on Christmas Day, and he sort of, you know, comes on the scene of this unfolding revelation that known as the Scripture, and he's the next actor in the play. I had no clue, no idea of the wonder of the Scriptures revealing 
the Lord Jesus all the way back to the book of Genesis and all the way forward to the book of Revelation. And that he has always existed. The son has existed always. Let's make sure we see this. If you ever get in trouble and, and someone sort of pins you down and says, tell me all you need, all I need to know about Jesus Christ, all you've got to do, go to is three stops, okay? John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Sort of run home to mama to those three places and you'll be fine. John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Here's, a lead, here's our lead-off batter from John 1. Notice the power paralleling well what we see in the book of Genesis. John writes these words, in the beginning was the Word. The Word will be another term for the Son. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. So he's the agent of creation. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The last sentence there, John writes like a lawyer. He's making sure that all T's are crossed. There's nothing that's come into being that, unless it has come through Christ. Notice now what he says in Colossians 1. He is before all things, signifying his preexistence, his eternality. And the author of Hebrews will say, God the Father speaking of his Son, but of the Son, he the Father says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So not only are these terms of preexistence, not only are these terms of eternality, but we'll see here in a moment, these are terms of deity. These are terms assigned only and used to describe God in other places. John 8, the Lord Jesus' own word. These words and many others in the book of John will get Jesus into trouble with the Pharisees, and this one was in particularly powerful. He's talking to the Jews and And he says, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, the Jews seem scratching their head here because a person probably in his 30s at this time is is having this conversation. They give him some, some leeway and says, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Now, let's remember our our history. Jesus probably is around, this is probably year 30, 31, maybe 32 AD, he's saying this. Abraham was born in 2166 BC. So some 2200 years, Jesus is saying, Abraham and I, uh, we're we're having a relationship. And he, he, Abraham, was glad to see my day. And Jesus therefore said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Notice the present tense. It's a very powerful term of deity. Also that I am is the equivalent of the Old Testament Yahweh, uh, the idea of the ever-present one, the ever-existing one. It's a term of deity. He's showing himself to be forever, always existing, always eternal. And he was always active. And so what we're going to take a look at some snapshots now of the, of the Lord in the Old Testament. First as creator, but the one who sustains his creation. As this unusual character known as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. And then the, in other theophanies, and we'll talk about what that word means here in a moment. But let's make sure we see, first of all, that the Bible claims that Jesus is the actor in creation, but notice also that he is actively tending his garden, if you will. From the beginning of the scripture, God is seen as a worker. Working involves all sorts of things, and in his, his job description, creation was very important. Notice, for by him, through Jesus, he is the agent of creation, all things were created. That's nice. And in him, all things hold together. There's this active sustaining force that he's also providing over and through and in his creation. 
And he made the world, Hebrews 1 tells us, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So the active creator sustainer is certainly seen. He's also seen as making some appearances. We're going to see later that Paul will say that he is the image of the invisible God. And any time prior to the incarnation of Christ, that is during the Old Testament, when, when God needed to show up and be seen, I take it that is the activity of the eternal Son, the activity of the eternal second person of the Trinity, the one that we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the most powerful one is the burning bush illustration in, in Exodus chapter 3. Here is a, a Cliff Notes version of that conversation. Notice the angel of the Lord, this term, this phrase rather, the angel of the Lord will appear about 15 times in the Old Testament. And it will be a distinct type of being. It will not be Gabriel. It will not be Michael. It will always have the article the, the angel of Yahweh. Keeping in mind now, angel, both in the Old and New Testament, just has the idea of a messenger, one who is bringing forth a message from someone. The angel of the Lord we're going to see is God. God showing up in his pre-incarnate state. And in this case, we see, and we can figure it out just from the language of Exodus chapter 3. Notice the angel of the Lord in verse 2 appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. So through the law of substitution, watch what's going to happen as the passage unfolds. In verses 4 and 5, it won't talk about the angel of the Lord from the midst of the bush. It will say that God called to Moses from the midst of the bush and told him, take your shoes off, by the way, for you are standing on holy ground. Michael, Gabriel would never say anything like that. They were always deflecting praise because they knew they were just a messenger from God. But in this case, God was the, midst, was the one in the midst of the bush. We know that God is the angel of the Lord by substitution. And in case it's not solidified, wait till you get to the end here in verse 6. Moses heard these words coming from the bush the angel of the Lord speaking, God speaking these words, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. Clearly, this pre-incarnate Christ was active not only in his creation, but in his discussions. And notice the angel of Yahweh speaks as God, identifies himself with God, exercises the responsibility of God all through the Old Testament. In Genesis, Judges, 2 Samuel, Zechariah, he is active. He shows up to make his point, to represent God as the image of that invisible God, and beautifully lets us see what he's about. Now, there are other appearances of the Lord. The, the, the fancy phrase for, for, for these other appearances, other than the times when he's the angel of the Lord, is this word theophany. It comes from two Greek words, theos and phaneo, to, to see or to uh, appear. So when a God appearance is a, a theophany. And a theophany, therefore, in the Bible is the second person of the Trinity when he appears in human form. And all, this is important for several reasons. It's really going to peak when we talk about the incarnation here in a moment. But God, from the very beginning, has always been interested in relating to his creatures. He's never seen as this a far away God who stands over everybody and says, do what I say. He is the God who later we will see will also become a man. So that idea of immense and intimacy, that idea of infinite infinitude will be beautifully balanced. And through the person of Jesus Christ, that is accomplished well, where he shows up in human form for the purpose of explaining himself. 
Elsewhere we'll see these theophanies. It is, it is an appearance of God who meets with Abraham in Genesis 18 to talk about Sodom and how many righteous people need to be in Sodom before it's not destroyed. Remember when Jacob uh, had a wrestling match? It, it, he wrestled with God. That's why he changed the name of the place where he wrestled to Peniel, face of God. Pen meaning face, Ael or meaning Elohim. Face of God is the one he wrestled with all night. It was the second person of the Trinity wrestling with Jacob. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel chapter 3 are in a fiery furnace, turned up sevenfold from its normal heat. All of a sudden, if you're watching that scene like a movie unfold, you see Daniel, or you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be able to withstand the flames of fire, and all of a sudden, a fourth man, a fourth creature shows up. They give him uh, the, the, uh, the, they laud him as God, the idea that even in that fire, God was with their people, Emmanuel. Probably my best and favorite scene uh, that I would have loved to have been a part of, loved to have watched, but more importantly, that helps me at least see, not only become aware, but appreciate and adore the Lord in this area, is when he formed our forefathers, our forefather and foremother, if you will, Adam and Eve. If there are electives in heaven, and I hope they are, and the way it would work is once we get to heaven, we get to go, maybe we have some time off or whatever, and we have an opportunity. And can I go back and see the Red Sea experience? Can I go see the cross? Can I go see the resurrection? And I want to see it like I am now, but I know I'll be glorified and I can't figure it out, but that's nonetheless sort of how I'm thinking. This is, I want to go to Genesis chapter 2, okay? I want to go see what I think we would see if that had been caught on film, if you will, is you'll see God in the person of Jesus Christ in the garden early in Genesis chapter 2, and around verses 4 through 7, you'll see a being that looks like a human being, that looks like a man, and he will reach down and, and begin to pile up what in Hebrew is known as Adama, from which Adam will come, dirt of the ground, and he will build this man and then breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and man will become a living soul. And if you had that on video, I think you would see a person here, and I think you would now see an intimate Adam here, two, human be- two beings on screen. Later in the same second chapter, from Adam's side, who will, be, who will be laid down, put to sleep, Eve will be fashioned from his side. And I think then, after that fashioning is over, the, the screen would reveal three beings. The second person, Adam and Eve. And then that, that gets me. That all of a sudden transcends a lot of highfalutin theology to God formed me. He is that intimate in my life. He's not a a deity from afar. He is a deity who has come close to us. And we see in in this aspect of formation, the most intimate thing that he could do would be literally shape us, literally form us, breathe into our nostrils the breath of life so that we become a living soul, so that we might have relationship with him. That also helps us see the, the tragedy of the fall. That which was intended to be so beautiful and powerful and wonderful in one chapter later is ruined. But even in that third chapter, by the way, just to add one more little aspect of sort of, the, of this humanness of God, this theophany, 
Adam and Eve, or the, Moses writes, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was just out taking a walk, just like a normal person would, just like what he has identified himself to be a human being, he is seen doing human types of things. Paul nails it in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. If we want to understand God, you understand Christ, whether that's in Genesis, Judges, Samuel, Zechariah, or the Gospels or the Epistles. Christ is the point man. He is the image of that invisible God. We spend a little bit more time in the old book, just for a second. The prophecies about the Lord are overwhelming. There are literally hundreds of direct prophecies and foreshadows about the person of Christ. The probability for you math guys and gals, for the, the probability of just eight of these being fulfilled in any one random person is one to the 10 to the 28th power. You probably thought there'd be no exponents this morning, but there are. One to the 20, 10 to the 28th power. It, it's a ridiculous number, obviously statistically impossible. The, the prophecies that are fulfilled in the Lord are absolutely amazing. There are literally hundreds. Here's just eight. Oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah says. He's going to be born from a virgin, Isaiah will tell us, from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. He will be heir to King David's throne, 2 Samuel 7. He will be incarnate, according to Isaiah chapter 9. His death will be by crucifixion, Psalm 22. That's why he, he, he uh, State Psalm 22 on the cross. His death will be an atonement for sin, Isaiah 53. His resurrection is foretold in Psalm 16. It is overwhelming the idea of the Lord Jesus being this character that has been introduced from Genesis and is not just that baby in a manger. In fact, that baby in a manger is in fact the one who formed us in the garden. And so this idea of God becoming a man, the most unique thing in religious experience, by the way, this immense, powerful God who created us now takes on our same form, our identity, we see in this idea of the incarnation. It's kind of a fancy phrase. Let's make, we, let's make sure we get it. The, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the one we're studying, the Son, took to himself an additional nature, humanity, or we know him as the God-man, Okay. I want you to imagine that you had invented ants, okay? On your resume, one bullet would be inventor of ants, okay? And ants is sort of your pride and joy. You love the fact that you've created ants. You love ants. You created ants to express your desire to have relationship with ants and for them to have a great relationship with you. And as time unfolded, things between you and the ants didn't seem to work out that much. You were very consistent in your love for the ants, but they, in fact, began to rebel against you. And they uh, took to uh, listening to other creatures and following other ways of approaching God. And, and, and you sort of said, okay, wait a minute, I, I, need to, I need to get some information to these ants so that they can straighten up and, and live the way they were supposed to. So you might send a grasshopper to go tell the ants, hey, you know, love your creator. You might go send a mole or a snake or a slug or whatever that was kind of ant-sized. Love your creator. And in fact, they rejected those words from those various creatures. Perhaps the best way for you to communicate to the ant would be to become an ant. Still maintaining your full ability as you are, but limit it somewhat by also taking on antness, living in little tunnels pulling grass stalks for a living, feeding a very large queen for some reason so there could be more ants 
and talking with little sticks coming out of your head. That's nonetheless what you would do if you truly cared to communicate to this rebellious ant kingdom that you were now overlord of. Obviously, the illustration is ridiculous. How much more is it uh, unthinkable that God would then become a man? We, we, we sometimes think of ourselves as pretty much got it going on, right? Think of us as ants, even a little smaller. God becoming a man is really the idea of this incarnation. And it was prophesied. And now what we'll see here in Isaiah 9, very clearly revealed that a child will be born to us, a normal word for a kid, a son, a male child will be born to us, given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Okay, Isaiah making a prophecy could be about a future Davidic king. I got that. A a, a kid now will grow up and be the king. His name will be Wonderful Counselor. Okay, he'll be smart. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This goes beyond the bounds of mere humanity. This is a God-man being predicted. The idea best captured perhaps in John chapter 1 Remember the Word, the Word was with God, person of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He literally, he tabernacled among men is how the old King James used to read. The idea of God living with his creatures is beautiful. Another thing that's noteworthy about the incarnation is it's sort of, it's permanent with the Lord. He took on flesh in Mary's womb and remains in flesh to this day and will so forever. A beautiful living audio-visual of his unfolding and continuing love for us, this idea of what theologians call humiliation, that we would hum- he would humble himself like we might get down on one knee to talk to a child. Christ takes on forever humanity, yet remains fully deified. He, the incarnation is a lasting state for our Lord. He began at his conception at birth and continues in his resurrection body forever. Why? Other than the ant illustration, what's going on with the incarnation? We needed somehow to get God. We needed somehow to understand him. The prophets we rejected, the word at times we would reject in the history of humanity. God becomes a man so that he can reveal the fullness of God to us. He provides an example for our lives. He provides an effective sin sacrifice. We'll see in a moment he had to be a man. He needed to fulfill the Davidic covenant, which promised a human king, which would sit on David's throne forever. And he would be a sympathetic high priest, one we could go to, as we'll see here, one who is sinless, yet nonetheless is sympathetic toward our ends. So this idea of the incarnation is going to combine two things, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, okay? And the key is not to overplay one against the other. In other words, as we take a look at the humanity first, see him as fully human. His birth attests to his, his humanity, normal birth inside a, a woman's womb. He had a true body, flesh and blood. We know he, he, he wept, he thirsted, he ate, he bled, his body died. He had normal development. He was growing in, in development and stature among men, Luke tells us. He had a normal human spirit, human soul. Normal human characteristics, all those things that we met. He was fully human, and he had to be a real man to represent us. Adam, the first sinner, if you will, is the reason that we're connected to this sin gene, if you will. In one man, 
all died, Romans 5 tells us. Adam's sin has an effect on you and I, thus the need for salvation. And in order to remedy the situation, the sacrifice needed to come from the group that had aggrieved God. And so Christ had to be a real man, but here's here's the sticky wicket, he had to be sinless. And among us, there were none to be found. We have lots of real men, real women, but none that could say, I'm a sinless sacrifice. I have unblemished. So that beautiful combination of identification with humanity, but also sinlessness, brings us to the wonder of the humanity of Christ. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, watch for it, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. The wonder of Christ is that he's fully man, had to be, but he's also sinless, thus making his sacrifice um, efficacious or, or, or worthy. He is also fully God. Remember we talked about not making sure that we hold, make sure we uphold his deity full as well as his, or his humanity full as well as his deity. Most of the heresies of the church have been some attempt to sort of put him in, the, in one box. So, well, he can't be fully God if he's also man, so I'll make him sort of god light. I'll make him just a, a little mini-God because I've got to make room to get humanity in there. And the incarnation says, no, fully God, fully man. He's not, he is an undiminished deity. Be careful not to diminish his deity and see him just as a good one of us or a prophet or someone who God's hand was on for a while. He is our creator in a human body, fully God, fully man, because of his deity, of course. Now his death has infinite value. See, God works in the realm of the infinite. And in his realm, the infinite value of his death makes it available for all of us to be saved. Our payment has been procured on the cross because of the deity of Christ. His death is afforded to all. And thus we can all approach him through, through faith, the one who died on a cross for our sins. He also received worship He never deflected. You'll see Paul, the angels elsewhere, deflect worship. He never deflected worship. He never said, don't call me that. He would often use these terms to describe himself. God, Lord, Son of God, Christos, Masiach or Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, King of kings, Lord of lords. Powerful terms signifying the deity of Christ. Remember Thomas? The doubter, how can this be? Jesus said, come on, come here, come here. Put your hands right here. See the holes right there? Put your hand in my side. Thomas hit the deck, my Lord and my God. Jesus himself was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Titus, Paul, as Paul writes to Titus, he reminds us that we're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make no bones about it. Don't make the error of thinking the New Testament and the Old Testament do not describe the deity of Jesus Christ. He's absolutely fully God. The wonder is, as we study, he's also fully man in this idea of the incarnation. And together, this idea of God and man together is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Hypo comes from the the Greek word hupo, which means under. The the, the, uh, static comes from a word histemi, which means to stand And so it's the idea of standing under something to support it. It's a term of solidification. 
It's a term of strength. And what the concept is, is that the deity and humanity of God are firm and strong. They are glued together. They remain distinct and separate, but they're not splitting up. That's a couple that's going to go on forever. And that's very important to the likes of you and me because we can now approach our Lord who is God, but he's also like one of us. That's the wonder of Jesus Christ, the idea of the hypostatic union. The two natures, human and God, the two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. He thus remains forever the God-man. Fully God, fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. The idea of the hypostatic union has wonderful application to us as we can move to the idea of adoration and probably no better place to think about these things outside of this room is Philippians chapter 2. The great kenosis passage from the Greek word meaning empty or to, to, he kenoed himself is seen here, although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. God became a man and made, was made, made, being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, to the point of death, even death on the cross. The form of God taking on the form of a bondservant. Famous John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Only begotten is a phrase you only hear in church, right? You never say that anywhere outside of here. What does it mean? It's just the idea of it's monogenes. Mono meaning one, genes from we get the word gene. One of a kind. He's the unique son of God. And that fits perfectly the description that we've seen for him, of him unfold. This unique being, the eternal second person. Probably my favorite verse is on, to describe the Lord is found in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9, and he is the, and in him is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form. You want to understand God, understand Christ. That's the beauty of the second person, and that's why we spend some time going through and making sure we see this. Now, this next area is probably we're a little bit more familiar turf, the earthly life of Christ. I've arranged it slightly different to, to let you see how the New Testament even elevates him. First, through his words. Okay? If, if, if you were a red letter Bible kind of guy or gal, and you were to look at all the red letters, and what you'd find is that half of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John collectively are red letters. If, you're, if you want to go out for the role of Jesus in a play, you've got a lot of lines to learn. Okay? Half of the Gospels are what Jesus says about stuff. Okay? It reveals his authority. His first sermon was quite a doozy. Uh, we notice the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At the end, Matthew felt the need to sort of evaluate, grade how the Lord had done in his sermon. And he said, and he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. What he spoke revealed his authority. And how he acted left a trail. His, not only his words, but his works. 35 separate distinct miracle accounts, plus a, a lot of just kind of throw-ins. Oh, and he healed hundreds here and thousands there, just mass healings. But 35 distinct individuals in which their plight was described. And then as he goes through, as the passage unfolds, what happened to the individual. Notice those miracle accounts revealed complete organic healing, okay? Woman with the issue of blood for 38 years, 
immediately healed, got up and served. A boy born blind didn't just go get, you know, cataract surgery, didn't get correct, collective, corrective lenses, immediately was able to see. That idea of a true miracle is important to see in the Scripture because that's the trail he leaves behind. Notice the arenas of his activity through his miracles. In the, or the area of nature, water into wine, for example, supply, feeding of the 5,000, healing as we might see, whether Peter's mother-in-law getting over uh, fever uh, to all the other ailments that we'll see being healed, and over the demonic forces revealing the power of the Lord over all aspects uh, of being, all aspects of, of activity. What is unusual about the story of the Lord, though, if you're reading it for the first time, this person who spoke such great things, who did such great things, was rejected. Primarily by the, due to the Pharisees claiming uh, this not proper for you to claim yourself to be equal with God. Some of those passages we've looked at, it ultimately led to his crucifixion. And that which he was promising, a kingdom for the, for the nation of Israel, was rejected. And now it's being held in abeyance. And that really kind of is the structure of the last times. That which has been offered has now been rejected, and we await his return and the later acceptance of his kingdom. We live in the middle of that time between the advents or between the um, uh, kingdom presentation. So his rejection signifies where we are with him now, and his rejection, of course, led to his death. But notice the aspects of his death and notice how God, as, as the author of Genesis says, that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Notice how what might appear to be a terrible thing is actually to our benefit. His death was first substitutionary. In complete and beautiful fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices, you'll see all kind of bulls and goats, turtle doves, all these things being brought to God for sacrifice. Your sin was placed on that as a substitute. My favorite verse that sort of transitions from the Old Testament to the New is the words here from John the Baptist in John 1.29, where he sort of throws a lasso around all the Old Testament sacrificial system and brings it forward and says, Behold, talking of his cousin, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, not just the Lamb that you had to bring every year, year after year at Passover, but now the ultimate Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. So the death of Christ, at first blush, horrific, second blush, it was proper that it was substitutionary. It also allowed us to be made right with God. Fancy word for that is to be justified or justification. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. He makes us right with God. The idea of his death also brought about that aspect that it was redemptive. Like we would go into the store and purchase something, God bought us with his death. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. We like to talk about, well, and I'm free in Christ, beg to differ. We're slaves to the one that owns us. Just like that loaf of bread is sla- your slave to whatever you want to do with it, we are slaves of the one who bought us. Slaves of righteousness, no longer slaves of sin but slaves to the one who bought us. A different way to look at our life today through the lens of the cross. 
And then the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that which appeared to be such a terrible time. The, the, the idea of the disciples are best seen here. They're sort of our models. Well, we could, in fact, really live that experience through them. We would be despondent. That which had begun so powerfully has now been rejected. He's now died. Oh, man, we followed this guy for three, three and a half years. What good can come from this, the death that and then following the resurrection of Christ, of course, was foretold by Old Testament prophets. The Lord, every time he had an opportunity, says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Go back and look at the number of times Christ prophesies that in the scriptures. And if you're a lawyer, if you're a detective, take this case. You've got good data, okay? Old Testament prophecies, the words of the Lord. You've got an empty tomb, and it's still empty you got the linen wrappings there. you got post-resurrection appearances by the Lord, speaking to 500 at one time. You've got others that were raised with the dead, from the dead at the same time Christ was raised. Think they had something to say? It would have been the most magnificent thing that ever happened. Certainly the word got out. The transformed disciples, they were emboldened by the actions of the resurrection. And they went to their death, that same kind of boldness. Sunday morning. We meet on Sunday mornings, not on the Sabbath. Sabbath was Saturday. Jesus went to church on Saturday. We go to church on Sunday. Why? Resurrection. It's that powerful in even human history. Regular folks will recognize that Sunday is a different kind of day. It was preached consistently by the disciples that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ forms the essence of the Christian gospel. If you're here today and have not really thought about the son in your life, in the area of, of coming to know him, that's the best I can do, is give you this idea that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, and that by faith in that, we might be made right with God. We might be saved from the penalty of our sin. 1 Corinthians 15 beautifully lets us see that. Again, keep in mind that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead. And the belief in that information, that fact will in fact make you right with God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, at first blush, does an unusual thing. It's like he, he works for the Pentagon or he, he's got inside secrets from Google or some big IT tech firm, and he all of a sudden says, this is the way to beat us. Okay? If you want to bring down Christianity, prove that Christ was raised, not, prove that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Paul lays it out all there. If Christ be not raised from the dead, then, notice the if-then connection, then our preaching is in vain. What are we doing? Why would we come here on a Sunday morning to hear sermons from the Word if it's not true and the validator of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible is the resurrection, Paul says. Our faith is in vain. We've believed in something that's not strong. It's, it's worthless. It's vain. Our, our, our faith, therefore, is worthless. It won't merit anything. And worst of all, we're still in our sins. We thought we had taken care of our sin problem before God. That, that separation that we felt from Genesis 3 on has now been, has been, been broached, we thought, and, and, and all of a sudden, that's not true? That, that chasm between me and God still exists? The resurrection is the quintessential aspect of the Christian faith. It determines the validity of Christianity. If Christ is not raised from the dead, this is all a lie. And he just puts it out there. 
He sort of says, this is where we're vulnerable. This is where you can defeat us, prove that the resurrection is not true. It also signifies the Father's acceptance of the work of the Son. Then he ascends, even teaching as he ascended. The, the author of Acts says, as he was lifted up, he says he will come, come back again in the same way. So he's going up. How is he going to return? Just play the tape backwards, and he's going to come the very same way. A visible, physical return, just like his ascension was visible and physical. So the ascension ends his earthly ministry. He is now the first of resurrected humanity in heaven. Paul calls that the first fruits. It means more to come. And the idea that the Holy Spirit will soon be sent will form the essence of what we know as the New Testament church. The present ministry of the Son, he's up to some things. In the beginning, God worked, and he's still working today. He's building his church, as he promised in Matthew 16. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. He is praying for us. Again, think of the immense, now becoming intimate, the infinite dealing with that which is finite. Christ at the right hand of God interceding for us, according to Romans 8. He is producing fruit in believers. He is the active agent of that fruit production. Our role is to stay connected to him in the vine, but it is his activity, his power that produces that fruit. He is preparing a place for us, ever the builder. He's building now a place for you and me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come again and receive you to myself. So he ties his present activity of building and reminds us that I'm coming back for you. The sure promise of the return of the Lord. That where you are, I may be also. Beautiful, beautiful. That where I am, rather, that you may be also. That wonderful idea of Emmanuel, God with us. We've seen it from the ant illustration all the way to the formation of you and me in the garden. God chooses and wants to be with his people. And his future, his future work, therefore, is hopeful. The, the, the wonder of, of eschatology and the study of last things, as we'll focus on later in the semester, is in fact what he will be doing. He will return for us as promised. He will raise the dead. He will reward all people, including, uh, John says in, in Revelation 20, that even those at the great white throne judgment will receive a recompense for their lack of faith and the deeds that they've done. And he will rule the world. First in the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign in which God Almighty is ruling on planet Earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and later in Revelation 21 and 22 in the new heavens and new earth. The wonder of Christ throughout the Scripture, captured so beautifully by John in Revelation 19. It sort of is the, the climax of the, of the Word of God is this struggle between sin first introduced in John in, in Genesis 3 is now sort of dealt a mighty blow in Revelation chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His name is called the Word of God, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The wonder of the Word of God forces us to ask, ask this question, where is the Son in my life? Where, is, where am I in context of this verse? We know that the Word became flesh. We know that, the, that He dwelt among us. 
And we, in a very small sense, have beheld his glory together this morning, his importance, his grandeur, his immenseness. But he also wants to have relationship with us. This grand God wants to, in fact, be a part of us. And so think it through this week as you took a look at these aspects again, as you move from awareness to to, uh, appreciation to adoration, praise and worship, all the various aspects of the Lord. I'll leave you with this one. The author of Hebrews makes this phrase, which I think beautifully captures this idea of immense as, as well as, as that which is intimate, the great reaching out to the small. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now notice, the immense God also reaches out. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Oh, come let us adore him, the scripture says, or the song says, the idea of the immense God reaching out to be with us so that we can approach him in times of need for mercy and grace. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to think about these things for just a few moments. For each one here, I pray that thy spirit might instruct us this week, might go back and cause us to look at the scripture and see if these things are so, that we might, as a result, move from a state of awareness to that of appreciation and then on our knees adore you. Thank you for the time that we've had this morning for each one here. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for hanging with me.